0: Well, good morning to you. Good to see you uh, this morning that some of you made it out through the rain. Uh, good to have you here. If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Luke. Uh, we're at the, getting close to the end of chapter 23. I've been preaching through the book of Luke. We're almost done. One more chapter after this. Uh, we're now in Luke chapter 23. We'll be reading uh, verses 39 to 43. Luke chapter 23. And just reading verses 39 to 43 this morning, let's pray before we read. Well, Father, we just thank you for another morning that you've given us. We do thank you, Lord, for an opportunity just to join together in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that even on a dark and and gray day, Father, that um, we can find energy from you. And we look to you now for it. Father, it's uh, a little more difficult, I think, on, a, on a, a gray and rainy day to to find that energy. And we just look to you now and ask for your help, Father. Uh, and Lord, as we focus on um, uh, a text here that is centered right around the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe a text some of us have heard many times before I do pray, Father, that you would keep us from being numbed to text like this, and Lord, you would, you would help us to, to read and to uh, consider uh, with fresh eyes this morning, Lord. Uh, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, and you would, you would feed us now, Father, through this uh, portion of your word, and we do thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. You know, people, people throughout history have had some uh, pretty famous last words. Some uh, pretty memorable statements with their dying breath. And I'll just give you a taste here of some famous last words. James Dean, as he was dying, said, My fun days are over. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. said, I never felt better. Comedian W.C. Fields, I'm looking for a loophole. General John Sedgwick said, In the heat of battle, They couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. (laughs) Karl Marx, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Tony Hancock, nobody will ever know I existed. Nothing to leave behind, nothing to pass on, nobody to mourn me. That's the bitterest blow of all. Cardinal Borgia, I have provided in the course of my life for everything except death, and now, alas, I am to die unprepared. Jonathan Edwards, trust in God, and you shall have nothing to fear. Martin Luther, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. D.L. Moody, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, God is calling me. Famous last words. And you know, here in this text, brief text we're looking at this morning, we hear some famous last words. Words that people all over the world now have read. And and they've pondered these last words for some 2,000 years. The last words of two criminals. And with the last words of these criminals here, we, we learn some things about a critically important subject. We learn several very simple truths here about salvation. And one thing we learn here is that salvation is through repentance and faith. In the passage before this, Jesus was crucified, nailed to a wooden cross by some Roman soldiers. And Jesus, he is now on that cross. He's he's now impaled on that cross on, on three long spikes, one through each wrist and one through his ankles and his hair now soaked with blood, His blood, blood's covering what was most likely his naked body, a swollen and, and bruised body uh, from the beatings, from a scourging, his flesh torn open, excruciating pain now for Jesus Christ. And he is now pulling himself up and down on three spikes in order to... To breathe. And Jesus, Luke told us in the previous passage, has been crucified here between two criminals one on his right, one on his left. Mark 15 calls them thieves. They had probably committed some serious crimes against the Roman Empire. The Romans typically only executed with crucifixion the worst of crimes. So bad crimes most likely for these men, and they have now been crucified for their crimes. But man, you think about this here. These criminals here, they could not have been crucified at a better place. Out of all of the crucifixions throughout human history, these two men here have been crucified right beside a man named Jesus. God in human flesh. The savior of the world according to the Bible. One final shot here for these two criminals to get right with God. An amazing opportunity here for these men to to receive an 11th hour, last second, presidential pardon from the God of the universe. It's an amazing place for these two men to be crucified. But one of these criminals here, with his last few breaths, he does nothing but verbally abuse Jesus. Luke says in verse 39 that he railed at Jesus, insulted him, hurled abuse at him. The Greek word there could also be translated as blasphemed Jesus. And the Bible actually indicates that at the start here, when these two men were first crucified, they were both actually blaspheming Jesus. Matthew twenty-seven forty-four says the robbers were plural, reviled Jesus in the same way. Both of them railing at Jesus. Crucified beside the Savior of the world, God in human flesh, one final shot to receive some sort of pardon, and they both just hurl abuse at him while they're on the crosses next to him. Kent Hughes says, The men impaled on his right and on his left. They hitched themselves up. They gathered in precious air and exhaled abuse on Jesus in deadly blasphemy. But it seems that at some point here, one of the men must have had a change of heart. And the tone of his words then changed. But the other just continued to rail at Jesus. Verse 39, he said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's the third time in this chapter now that that people have mocked a crucified Jesus with almost the exact same words. If you are somebody Jesus, then save yourself. In verse 35, the religious leader said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his his chosen one. And then in verse 37, the soldiers then then said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, Jesus. And now this criminal, are you not the Christ? Are you not the, the, the Messiah from God? Save yourself then and us. Save yourself and us. You know, you, you step back you look at this passage here. Both of these criminals here beside Jesus, they, they, they both essentially ask Jesus to save them in some way. Both of them request from Jesus some sort of salvation. But, but man, here's, 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 here's what was drastically different between these two men. It was the heart behind their requests. This first criminal here just railing at Jesus. His, his request for a salvation from Jesus comes from a heart of bitter unbelief. He doesn't truly believe Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't truly believe Jesus can get himself off of the cross. And his words at Jesus right here, I think they're probably just, just, just coming from a, a heart of, of bitter anger at Jesus. Just a bunch of angry, pain-fueled, venom just spewed at Jesus on the cross here but the other criminals request for a salvation it won't come from bitter unbelief it will come from from a humble heart of faith very different hearts in these two criminals by the end of this passage and and these two criminals here they also request from Jesus a very different type of salvation the second criminal he will humbly ask Jesus to save him eternally. The salvation of the soul. But this first criminal here, railing at Jesus. He just wants Jesus to save him temporally. Just a salvation from his suffering. A salvation from this cross. The only thing he wants from Jesus is a miracle. And that right there, that, that is the type of Jesus that a lot of people today want. They, they just want a Jesus who will work miracles for them when they need it. Relieve their suffering when they need it. When they, need it. they want a Jesus who's, who's a sort of divine bellhop. He's there at their beck and call ready to give them whatever they need whenever they need it. Give them, give them a, a, a pain-free, nice life. And yet he demands nothing from them. They don't need to turn away from sin and repentance they don't need to follow him in faith don't need to honor him obey him love him worship him they they just a jesus who works miracles and then gets out of the way so they can live their life the way they want to live it and the problem however is that jesus that type of jesus doesn't exist man if that's all you want from jesus jesus gives you nothing and this first criminal here, Saul he wants. I don't think he really believes Jesus can do it, but just in case, Jesus, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And he just wants a miracle from Jesus. And when he doesn't get it, he just keeps raging against Jesus. And man, you think about this criminal here. With his final words here in this life, he checks out Just spewing venom at God in human flesh. Voltaire, the uh, French philosopher, absolutely hated Christianity. His final words were spoken to his physician. He said, I am abandoned by God and man. I'll give you my physician. I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you'll just give me six months of life. Then I'll go to hell and you'll go with me. And Voltaire's final words, Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. And he checked out. Man, with his dying breath, just spewing venom, spewing blasphemy at God In human flesh. And that's this criminal here. And how does Jesus respond to this criminal here? This man beside him. Just railing at him. Just demanding things from him. Abusing him. Just hurling blasphemy at him. How does Jesus respond? Silence. Absolutely nothing. No rebuke. No argument. No defending of himself. No comfort, no warning, not a word. And I think that's his response now. If you come to Jesus demanding things from him and railing at him when he doesn't give them to you, you get silence. And if you die in that condition like this criminal here did, you then receive an eternal punishment for your sins against him. So man, one, one criminal's last words here, they are, they are cries of blasphemy. And the other criminal here apparently started out like that, but at some point here something changed. And his last words weren't cries of blasphemy, but cries for mercy. May you think about that here as he's on his cross, I wonder what that, that change in this man might have looked like. You know, it's possible that this man on the cross was also, you know, just railing at Jesus here, and then, then he just kind of suddenly stopped. He became quiet on his cross, and he may have just begun to, to listen, and to look around him, and kind of to, to, to think Consider all that he'd seen and heard that day, maybe maybe thinking back to this morning when he'd seen this badly bloodied Jesus stumbling his way to the execution site meekly, silently, almost like a lamb to its slaughter. And then, And then this Jesus next to him, after this Jesus was nailed up on the cross, he he hears Jesus, not cursing like a criminal, but actually praying. Calling God his Father and actually praying for the people who just nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, man, listening to all of these people out in front, just angrily mocking this Jesus beside him with all these titles, Christ, chosen one of God, King of the Jews. And then he sees this placard, this sign placed above the head of Jesus. But the sign above the head of Jesus, it doesn't contain a list of crimes like the sign above his head The sign above the head of Jesus simply says this is the king of the Jews. And now he looks at this Jesus as the other criminal continues to hurl abuse at him. Silence. No defending of himself. Nothing. Not not a word. No cursing in return. Nothing. Nothing. And who knows? I think the criminal here, he probably did see and hear and began to consider all these different things. And all of a sudden, something deep in his heart it just clicked. And he knows. This is the Christ. This is the chosen one of God. This is the King of the Jews. the Savior of the world. The Christians in the past would look at this and say he had a spiritual awakening. The Holy Spirit sovereignly moving upon this criminal just moments before death. The Holy Spirit removing the veil that had blinded his mind. The Holy Spirit illuminating his darkened heart and his heart and his mind can now comprehend truth. Like Lydia in the book of Acts, the Bible says that God opened her heart so that she might comprehend the things that Paul was speaking. Holy Spirit opens this criminal's heart and he can now comprehend truth. Holy Spirit opens his ears and he can hear truth, opens his eyes, and he can now see truth. Something clicks inside of him and he knows. I think this was probably Charles Wesley's famous hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye then diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. An awakening. And man, this second criminal's words here, I think they now change dramatically. Look at verse 40. Luke records now what he says. The first criminal still raging at Jesus. And Luke says, But the other now rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? You're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Man, it's amazing. All of a sudden, this criminal now rebukes the other criminal. He now fears God, and he can't believe that this other criminal continues to rail against Jesus right before he dies. Don't you fear God, you fool? Don't you realize that you are under the same condemnation of the man you are now abusing? Don't you understand that you are also pinned to a cross just like him? What gives you the right to yell at him? here on the cross. And He goes on and he says, we, we have been condemned justly. Thieves who deserve to die, reserve, receiving the due reward for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's an innocent man. He should be yelling at you. All through this chapter, people have been saying that Jesus was innocent. And this criminal here now just said it. This man, he's done nothing wrong. So this criminal man, he now, he now rebukes the other criminal. He then turns to Jesus. And as far as we know, the words that he now speaks to Jesus are the very last words of his life. Look at verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, Jesus. And listen, if you, if you get to think through the last words of your life, You are not killed instantly in a car wreck or something like that. And you can actually think through what you will say at the end of your life. That right there would be a really good option. Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. Remember me. It's the only time in the book of Luke where someone addresses Christ using his personal name, Jesus. Jesus. They always come up to him, call him master, they call him teacher, call him rabbi, and this criminal here says, Jesus. It's a perfect way for this criminal to address Jesus because the name Jesus means Savior. Remember me, Savior. Remember me, he says, when you come into your kingdom. And who knows what was going through the criminal's mind when he said that. I think he was probably thinking there about some future return of Jesus, that he was somehow going to return? He's expecting Jesus to somehow return? To take his kingdom for good? Man, this criminal here now somehow knows that this man beside him is truly the king of the Jews. He can now all of a sudden see through somehow all of this blood and gore. He can now somehow see past the nakedness and the shame here. And man, he sees... He sees royalty, the king. And I think this man here now also somehow knows that this dying king here will will someday somehow return, The, the return of the king, return not in bloody weakness but in power and glory. He'll somehow return and then come into his glorious consummated kingdom for good to reign forever. I think he knows that somehow this guy Jesus, King Jesus, is coming back To take his kingdom for good. So man, he hitches himself up on his cross now. And he takes a deep breath of air. And with what may very well have been his final words, he says, remember me, Jesus. I can see you now. I know who you are. You're the king. I can see it you're the king, you're the king, you're the king. And when you return, King Jesus, to rule and reign for good, please remember me. And please don't remember me the way I just was. Railing at you, abusing you, hurling blasphemy at you. Please do not remember me in anger and wrath and destroy me forever. Please, Jesus, remember me in mercy. Please remember me. Jesus, when, when you come again and man, you step back and you look at what that criminal just said, you know what you have there? It's just repentance and faith. It's repentance and faith, that's it. It's a very simple repentance. He acknowledges his sin. He says, I am justly condemned here. I am receiving the due reward for my deeds here. I deserve this cross. He owns his sin. You know, so many people in our world, they just blame everybody else for their sin. I had a bad upbringing. That's why I do what I do. My parents just weren't any good. That's why I do it. My boss is a jerk. He makes me sin. My spouse makes me sin. You just blame everybody else in the universe but man, a repentant person owns his sin. It's my fault. I have sinned. It doesn't matter what you did to me. There's no excuse for me to, rec- to sin in response. And a repentant person recognizes that he deserves to die for his sin. Man, a, a repentant person you stop acting like you deserve from God some sort of pain free life. You stop acting like you deserve from Jesus all of these miracles, like you deserve Jesus to give you a life with no suffering. And you finally acknowledge that the only thing you actually deserve in this life is a cross. That's it. That's it. This is what I've deserved. This is what I've earned. A cross. I've earned the immediate and unending wrath of God for my sin. That's it. Repentance. And man, you could see it in that criminal there. Just a simple repentance. And he also has a simple, genuine faith there. He believes Jesus is innocent. And he also believes that Jesus truly is to Christ. He's the Chosen One of God. He's the King of the Jews. I think he believes here that Jesus will somehow return someday. And he also believes here that Jesus will maybe have mercy on him when he does return. And he believes those things enough to raise himself up and ask for mercy. Essentially praying now Jesus remember me an act of faith and man you think about it this man's faith here this is an amazing faith a a faith beyond reason to a large degree you think about it he's staring at a dying man here a pulverized man A man who's mocked and shamed here, probably naked on this cross, and yet he somehow sees royalty. One writer said, many people saw Jesus raise the dead and didn't believe, and this man sees Jesus dying and believes. And John Calvin said that, quote, since the creation of the world, there's not been a more remarkable and striking example of faith than this thief. He adored Christ as king while Christ was on the gallows. He celebrated Christ's kingdom in the midst of Christ's shocking and worse than revolting abasement. He declared Christ to be the author of life when Christ was dying. He saw life in death. He saw exaltation in ruin. He saw glory in shame. And he saw victory in destruction. End quote. That's amazing faith. A faith beyond reason. A faith that could have only been birthed by the Holy Spirit. I believe. I believe. I believe. Do you have that faith? Do you have that faith that would look beyond reason at times? A crucified God? Crucif- he, he rose again? Really? He can save you from your sins? Do you have that faith that can look through that? And say, I, I believe. I believe. He does and, Cries out for mercy and he receives mercy. Jesus grants him salvation. That's one thing we learn about salvation here. It comes through repentance and faith. And the second thing we learn here salvation is immediate and eternal. You look at verse 43 man, this criminal just said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, absolutely silent with the other criminal, as soon as this man cries out for mercy here, Jesus turns his head and speaks, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the man's been saved. He's cleansed. He's, He's forgiven. Immediately, on the spot done and this salvation that he now has will extend into eternity you will be with me jesus says in paradise which is heaven you will be with me in my eternal heaven and notice here that jesus says today it's a fantastic word i think jesus just won up the man in a massive way I think the man just wanted to to be with Jesus someday in the future. (laughs) And Jesus says, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not in the future when I return to earth, not just then, not when I return and consummate my kingdom, not just in the future, but today. And we learn something precious there about the death of believers. What happens when a believer dies That believer's spirit is instantly with Jesus Christ in heaven. According to the Bible, there is no place of limbo where your spirit goes and then just sort of waits. According to the Bible, there is no place called purgatory where your spirit goes and then works and suffers to somehow pay off or atone for some of your sins there's no such thing according to the Bible as soul sleep where your spirit just goes into the ground and falls asleep no your body goes (laughs) into the ground when you die and Paul says in first Corinthians 15 that your body sleeps but your spirit goes instantly to be with Jesus the second that your physical eyes close in death your spirit is with Christ in heaven And your spirit then waits with Jesus in heaven until Jesus returns to this earth the second and final time. And your body will then be resurrected from the dead. A glorified, perfected body. And your spirit will then rejoin your body and you will then live both spirit and body in the presence of Jesus forever. And you will live in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. A new perfect and physical creation, heaven in its final form. Man, we look forward to that day when heaven is established in its final form. And we live there in glorified bodies. But please listen to me. Until that day... At death a believers spirit is still instantly with Jesus in heaven in this temporary sort of heaven which exists right now Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that for a believer to die is gain and to depart is to be with Christ J.C. Ryle says, quote, that word today tells us that the very moment a believer dies, his soul is in happiness and safekeeping. His full redemption, the redemption of his body, is not yet come. His perfect bliss Will, will not begin until the resurrection, but there is no mysterious delay, no season of suspense, no purgatory between his death and state of reward. In the day that he breathes his last, he goes to paradise. End quote. <laughs> Think about that too. Jesus saying to this criminal here, you'll be with me today in paradise how cool is that for this criminal i mean, it's like taking a, a non-stop flight from pain to to paradise man one second pain paradise there you go and listen do you, do you realize what jesus was saying there when you die as a believer you'll be back in the garden of eden only much better The Greek word for paradise there in verse 43, that is the exact same word that was used for the Garden of Eden in the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Septuagint. And Jesus, by using that word, He's trying to say something to us here. He's trying to say that if you truly repent and trust in Him in this life like this criminal here, then the second you die, you're back in the Garden of Eden. Only much, much better. And man, how cool is that? Because the human race was created to live in the Garden of Eden. We were created to live in paradise. We were created to to live there. A perfect home. Living in the very presence of God. A perfect fellowship with God and other people. But we lost our paradise. We sinned. Because we sin, sinners can't live in the presence of God. So God banished us from paradise. And in Genesis 3, God put a flaming sword in front of Eden. So we sinners could not get back into paradise. John Milton's famous book, Paradise Lost. We we lost paradise. Man, listen. The human race. The human race has been groping for paradise ever since. We've been looking for this place that we lost. Every single human being searching around, grasping, trying all kinds of different things, trying to find the, this, this paradise type of life in this paradise home. Human race just searching every for, everywhere for it. And you realize what Jesus is saying right here I can bring you back to paradise. Paradise lost is now paradise regained in me. I can take you back there. I have opened the door back to paradise. That's what Jesus is doing here on this bloody cross. You know what he's essentially doing? He's basically going through the flaming sword. He's opening the way back into paradise paradise. In his brutal death here, man, Jesus is paying for the sin of sinners. He's atoning for the sin of sinners. Jesus was making a way for sinners like me to be forgiven and cleansed. He's making a way for sinners like me to enter back into paradise. A much better paradise than Eden. A paradise called heaven. A perfect eternal home where we could once again live in the presence of God. And in the presence of other people and experience a sweet, perfect fellowship with God and other people. And man, that perfect, eternal paradise home is yours the second you repent and cling to Christ in faith. It's yours. The Savior turns to you at that second, smiles at you and says, "You, you will be with me. In paradise. Second you die. Pain to paradise. <laughs> enjoying. The infinite glory of Jesus. Enjoying his presence. Enjoying his people. Forever. Salvation. It is immediate. It is eternal. Second you repent and believe. You are saved. And that salvation then extends into. An eternal home called paradise and a third thing we learn about salvation here salvation is by grace alone and not by works you think about this thief here nailed to the cross Jesus definitely did not save this man on the basis of his good works he has none He was a thief up to this point, railing against God until just minutes before his death. And now, after repenting and believing, he is nailed to a cross. (laughs) He's not going to have a chance to perform many good works at this point in his life. All this man really had time to do was repent and believe in Christ, and bang! The door into paradise was opened wide, wide for him. Saved immediately, saved eternally, not because of any good works whatsoever, but because of grace and grace alone. This man did not enter paradise because he lived a good moral life. He didn't enter paradise because he was nice to people. He wasn't nice to people he didn't enter paradise because he was baptized or because he did some sort of penance or because he went to church services or read his bible or recycled he didn't go to paradise because he went to mass and took the eucharist he didn't go to paradise because a priest read him his last rites no this man went to paradise on the basis of grace and grace alone sheer grace only grace, the grace of God. This man had nothing. Just a simple childlike, genuine repentance and faith in Christ and he dies and enters paradise for all eternity. Salvation is not according to your works. You do not earn salvation. It is a free gift from God through Jesus Christ and it is all to the praise of God's glorious grace according to Ephesians chapter one. Charles Spurgeon wrote an amazing little book. Uh, I would seriously encourage all of you to read it. It was so helpful in, in my own journey to peace with Christ. Just a little book. He was trying to write it very simply so people would know the basics of the Christian life. And he titled his book, All of Grace. The Christian life from start to finish is grace. It is grace that saves you. It is grace that then empowers you to perform good works. It is all of grace. The Protestant reformers used to say that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, a person who is truly saved by grace will always produce good works. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Once you become a good tree, the Holy Spirit living in your heart, the Holy Spirit will produce good works in you, good fruit, but you are not saved by those good works, but by grace and grace alone. John Chrysostom, writing more than a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation in about A.D. 500-600, he said, the thief that was hanged when Christ suffered, he did believe only, and the most merciful God justified him. Justification by faith. Alone, A man on a cross. Declared righteous by God. Justified by God. Righteous in the sight of God. Declared to be righteous by faith. And faith alone. And all the glory goes to God. God has come up with a way of salvation. That would give him all of the glory. So that no man... Would boast. Salvation is by grace, not by works. And one final thing we learn here about salvation. <laughs> precious truth here. Salvation is available to you until the very last second of your life. It is possible for someone to have a deathbed conversion. You see it right there. Seconds from death, no, no good works to show for his entire time on this earth. No time to do any good works. A criminal repents. He trusts in Christ, cries out for mercy. And he enters paradise, a deathbed conversion. Samuel Johnson, he was a, he was a Puritan back in the 1700s. He would often quote a line to encourage people. And the the image in this line that he would quote, it was the image of, of a man being thrown from a horse to his death. And Samuel Johnson would say, between the stirrup and the ground, mercy asked, mercy found. Between the stirrup and the ground, I mercy asked, I mercy found. Man, as long as you still have breath in your lungs between the stirrup and the ground and you cry out for genuine mercy to Jesus and you will receive mercy. Man, that gives us hope when loved ones die. I hope you realize that. You know, you can have a loved one who dies and you just think there's no way that person trusted in Jesus and it's very possible that they didn't. But listen, we will just never know. Until we see Christ face to face, we will never know how many people in this life had a deathbed conversion. You just don't know what happens in the last seconds of a person's life. But man, listen, it doesn't mean you should wait until later to repent and believe. I can just do it on my deathbed, have some fun now. Problem with that is you don't know when you're going to die and you don't know that God will actually give you the grace to repent and believe when you do die. J.C. Ryle, he said, we have one account in the Bible of a deathbed repentance in order that no man need despair. It's never too late. But we only have one account in the Bible in order that no man may presume. Yes, Jesus is more than gracious enough To save even the worst of criminals who repents and clings to Jesus in faith at the last second of his life. But do not presume upon that grace of Jesus by delaying. Do it now. So man, you just step back from this passage. It really is an amazing passage. Jesus, you think about in the last hours of his life, he's, he's impaled on a cross. He's struggling to breathe horrific pain. And yet right then, Jesus hears a cry for mercy. And he responds by giving mercy, the last second, 11th hour pardon to a criminal. I mean, a lifelong thief. This guy had spent his entire life just taking things from other people. Wasted his entire life. And yet just seconds before he dies, he cries out for mercy and he receives a pardon. Today you will be with me in paradise. And oh my word, that is incredible news for you and me. You know why? Because you're a thief. You're a criminal. And so am I easy to step back from this passage and say thank God I'm not up there a thief you're a thief you're a criminal we all are by nature the entire human race we've all committed crimes serious crimes against the God who created us we've all stolen things that belong to God and we treated them as if they were our own You think of all the things God has given us, entrusted to us. He's entrusted to us a life. He's entrusted to us a world. He's entrusted to each one of us a measure of time and and treasure and and talents. They're His things. And He entrusted them to us so that we might use them for His glory. But we took His things. We called those things our our own. We, We wasted His things on ourselves Use them for our own glory. Stole His things. Stole His glory. We, we are all, to some degree, glory thieves. Tried to rob Him of His glory. The entire human race. Man, just a bunch of criminals. The thieves next to Jesus here? That's us. Justly condemned for our crimes. Deserving nothing but a cross. wrath of God you're a thief I'm a thief man the critical question this morning is which thief are you which thief are you will your final words in this life be bitter cries of blasphemy are you still at that point just going to be demanding more and more from the God of this universe demanding to be healed railing at him because he's not helping you in that moment. Didn't help you in your life. But will your final words be broken hearted cries for mercy. Recognizing your sin. Recognizing that you deserve an eternal hell for your sin. Not demanding anything from God at that moment. But simply crying out for mercy. Remember me Jesus. When you come into your kingdom. What will your last words be like? Which thief are you? Copernicus, the famous astronomer, with his his final words back in 1543, he said this. He said, I do not ask, O God, for the grace that you gave to St. Paul. Nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter. But the mercy which you did show to the dying robber. That mercy, oh God, please show to me. And he died. If you ask for mercy, like Copernicus, like this criminal Jesus will, he will give you mercy. You will be with me in paradise. I'm just going to close a poem by Richard Burnham. My prayer is that your final words would be something like this. Jesus, Thou art the sinner's friend. As such, I look to Thee. Now in the fullness of Thy love, O Lord, remember me. Remember Thy pure word of grace. Remember Calvary's tree. Remember all Thy dying groans. And then, remember me. Thou wondrous advocate with God. I yield my soul to Thee. While Thou art pleading on the throne, dear Lord, remember me. And when I close my eyes in death, and human help shall flee, then, then, my dear redeeming God, oh then, remember me. Father, Your... Your mercy here in this passage is, is just astounding. Father, a man who'd done nothing good in his entire life. A man who'd just been blaspheming, cursing, railing at your son Jesus. Deserving to be damned instantly. Heading that way quickly. Father, that you would lavish mercy by giving a criminal like that a spiritual awakening, helping him to see in his final moments, helping him to see Jesus, helping him to see his sin, leading him to repentance and faith, and you bring him into the kingdom. God, we are so grateful that story is in the Bible. With such mercy, such mercy from you on huge display there. A glorious God. We thank you for it. I pray you give us hearts to believe it, hearts to receive it. Father, give us hearts to trust. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.